a lot about ego in here in this question, so we'll go on with that. Since ego is such a tangible troublemaker and general disaster zone, how not to feel enmity for it? Well, it doesn't help to feel any enmity for the ego. The, um, the first thing to know about it is that it's a universal problem and not a personal problem. And that makes it already easier. And if one sees it as a universal problem, one also knows what's wrong with the world. And one doesn't have to have any particularly um, particular anger or resistance to it. One just knows the reason for it. And as we know the reasons, we, um, well, we make slow and gentle changes. But if we have any anger for the fact, well, that we're not enlightened, then we are increasing our negativities. Another one about ego, our no self. I believe you said one realizes there is no self when he or she enters jhana. I didn't. I read that it is not until one who has experienced stream entry that one no longer believes in the illusion of an abiding entity or self. When one enters the first or second or third jhana, there's hardly any um, experience of no self because there's a very strong observer. But in the higher jhanas, the formless ones, one gets a taste of it. And as one gets a taste of it, it's much easier to accommodate in one's feeling and understanding. The um, crux of the matter is the past moment, which means that one has been able for one second to let go of all clinging and attachment called path moment and then one is a stream enterer and then one can never have the wrong idea about self again but the stream enterer still has the wrong feeling about self she still feels self but, doesn't, but knows better so there are other steps then to be taken but the realization of no self is a path moment. The taste of it are the higher jhanas. The letting go of self-support is the letting go of thinking which makes it possible to get into the jhanas. How does Ramana Maharshi saying beyond who you think you are is who you are compare with your being nothing or rather being nobody huh? his words induce an experience which might be called higher self your words induce or point to an experience of the emptiness of I since Ramana Maharshi was a um, 
adept of Advaita Vedanta, which is non-dualistic Vedanta. One can assume, and I can only assume, that he meant exactly the same thing. I have no personal knowledge whether he meant that or not. I would assume he did, meant exactly the same thing. I'm putting all the selves and the non-selves together. Uh, could one say that non-self and cause and effect are two sides of the same coin? There is no self, there's only cause and effect. Well, I wouldn't express it as two sides of the same coin, but in absolute reality, there's nothing else. Everything doesn't have a abiding entity, whatever it may be. So, in this case, if we talk about cause and effect, yes, there's cause and effect. But that's only one aspect of no abiding entity and not all of it. Trying to get rid of the me is like trying to get rid of a boomerang by throwing it away, isn't it? Hmm. Yes, useless, isn't it? I can't do it that way. We have, in order to get rid of the boomerang, we have to put, in, put the boomerang into a uh, solvent that dissolves it. It's the same with the me. We have to put it into a solvent that dissolves it. Throwing it away won't do any good at all. Um, we can temporarily um, diminish it through the concentration, through mindfulness, through lovingness, but to get rid of it, there has to be the solvent of non-clinging, of recognition through insight. I think that's all on the selves and the non-selves. This all I remember. Or maybe this one here. Somewhere. Ah, here, no, there's some more. To love myself but not my ego, how does that come together? Well, if we love on an ego base, we are, it's interesting, isn't it? One was hating the ego and this one's loving the, uh, wanting to know about loving the ego. Um, if it's ego based, it's indulgence. And it doesn't have any, um, impersonality in it but it's a very personal thing and uh, it's uh, trying to have what one wants that's an ego-based love but if there's just the warmth of the heart which is love as such it isn't personal it's just love as such directed towards this person and then directed in exactly the same way towards other <coughs> persons and the question of ego does not arise at that time. And the only thing that is a fact is that the person who does it hasn't got rid, of course, of the illusion of self. So still thinks, I am doing the loving-kindness meditation. But the love as such 
is an impersonal one. It's just a warmth of the heart. Can a stream enterer go backwards without practice or once this happens practice is assumed? No, neither. Practice is never assumed. It's hoped for. But a stream enterer cannot go backwards, no. A stream enterer is called a noble one, an Aryan. And anyone who has not, is not a stream enterer is called a worldling, a puttajana. And it is... Um, a division which changes the outlook so dramatically there's no way of going back it's the only it's the first point of safety and if one doesn't practice one just has to go on with it next time that's all happens resting on one's laurel sort of thing Here's a nice one. Also, maybe above me. Oh, I think we've done the self and no self. So we'll go to something else. We'll go to absolute and relative truth. I have a fair few of those too. Is being a woman an absolute or a relative truth? <laughs> <laughs> Extremely relative. <laughs> nothing absolute about it (laughs) absolute would be being at particles that come together and fall apart but um, I hear something about ego again no yeah I actually know um, a man who made himself um, through operations be a woman so it couldn't be less absolute hmm? I'll have to translate that so it takes a little, little longer is it a good idea in order to diminish the ego not to take oneself very um, as very important um, the answer is yes I mean with that, though, that the wishes and needs of others are more important than one's own. To become servant of my surroundings. For instance, uh, to let people without homes or homeless people live with me and uh, feed them and take over the uh, duties the daily duties of others or at least um, make it easier for them and for others be a uh, I don't know how to translate that (laughs) Um, be a um, rubbish can uh, (laughs) be a uh, yeah rubbish can Uh, or offer oneself as a rubbish can for their problems or just simply um, be uh, available for them so that they don't have any boredom 
the, uh, our society calls this kind of behavior to be an idiot for others. <laughs> Is it that? Should we, should we practice that? <laughs> There, to love others just like myself are there uh, some rules or some uh, advice which I could use when others are more important than myself well that's a contradiction in terms isn't it to love others like myself does not say that others are more important than myself it means to see no difference just like what we try to do today in the uh, contemplation on the elements see everything as being one now of course that's difficult but now the Buddha yes he did have quite a number of uh, good chips on this but this is what's asking for to uh, have an idea how to do this he said generosity giving to others the gift that we give we need to consider that the purity of the receiver purifies the gift in other words we have to use a bit of wisdom when we want to be generous and the wisdom along the lines of where the giving will be of the kind of um, result which one can assume that it will actually benefit where there is benefit with it now if we for instance see um, a drunken person on the sidewalk and they're asking for money be fairly foolish to give that person some I mean we know already without even thinking twice about it what that person's going to do with the money so maybe it would be a better idea to see to it that that person might be taken somewhere brought somewhere where they could be helped to let go of this very unfortunate habit if that is possible at that time may not be possible so if we use discrimination where our generosity will really benefit where there are people that can benefit themselves and the world then we have an idea where generosity can be useful to take away or take over other people's duties doesn't seem to be a very uh, useful thing to do if they have duties they'll probably be quite happy to fulfill them and um, to talk to people because they're bored it might be better to be able to teach them loving kindness meditation <laughs> In other words, use discrimination as much wisdom as one has.
and to love others in the same way one loves oneself. Who or what does the accounting for our karma? Somebody or something must be pushing the karmic resultants this way or that into this life or that uh, that form or Nibbana please help me comprehend the incomprehensible it's really so simple the difficulties come when we try to um, see connections which aren't even there imagine that you're walking along one of these hallways and another person comes from the other direction and some little devil gets into your mind and you think that's a terrible person and when that person is next to you you kick that person as hard as possible (laughs) who's got to push the karmic resultant the other person's going to kick back. <laughs> That's a karmic resultant. There's no, no accountant there. It's a natural phenomenon. It's as simple as that. Make it simple for yourselves. Oh, I think we've done with it me and mine so we'll get some other things if one is artistically gifted and has received recognition and praise for this how to avoid the perception that one is special I imagine that many artists have believed this and it's part of their motivation to produce work not the only one I'm sure are not some people special those of a high degree in the arts, culture, etc. are not the enlightened ones special. Well, there's no gain saying the fact that certainly some people have more advances, advantages and advances in areas such as the arts, on the spiritual level, in the sciences or whatever. The minute one thinks one is special, one is uh, making the ego a little bigger and fatter and uh, has more trouble dealing with one's surroundings and with the people that one meets. I usually compare that to a person who is so fat that when they try to come through this doorway, they hit both sides. The fatter the ego, the more of uh, collusions we have. (laughs) (laughs) So, being special is is not really there. An enlightened one would never think they're special. An enlightened one has nothing but um, compassion for everyone else because he can probably he or she can probably remember what it was like when he or she were not enlightened so they have a lot of compassion hmm? 
while doing the part-by-part exercise, I only feel sensations, no emotions at all, apart from the irritation that arises when in certain areas or spots I cannot make out any sensation at all. Could this be due to emotional blockages or is it quite normal? No, it's perfectly all right. It's quite all right just to have sensations and no emotions. It's just a possibility that emotions come up. But the sensations themselves are results of emotions. As I explained when we were talking about it, that when one is sad, which is an emotion, the tears flow or we frown. So these are physical reactions. So the physical reactions that we have in the body as sensations as perfectly all right and sufficient. Um, looking at the irritation would be very useful because irritation is due to craving. I want it different from the way it is. I would like to have um, sensation in certain areas or spots where I don't get them. So it's very useful to look at the irritation. Could you please explain what the Buddha meant when he compared his teaching to a snake that may be dangerous for the person who approaches it in the wrong way? Yes, the simile the Buddha used was this. He said the Dhamma, or the teaching, is like a snake. If you pick it up by its tail, it will bite you. If you pick it up behind the head, you can make a pet of it. So you have to really, according to that simile, recognize what is important and how to deal with it. And um, I dare say I have tried to point that out. And uh, when you go home, you'll find out how much of that has really um, had an impact, what's important and how to deal with it. What are the Buddha's other four hand movements besides the open palm? Well, one is the meditation posture, which is in this particular um, statue here, the two hands in the lap. Then we have the open palm, which says I've never, I've never taught with a closed fist, only with an open hand. And we have the uh, hand movement like this, which says no fear. Then there's a hand movement, which is the wheel of the Dhamma, which is a teaching posture, like that. And then there's one where usually it's the right hand, sometimes it's the left, is with the palm inward and the fingertips touching the earth. And the symbolism for that is that at the time when there's a Buddha alive, there's no one else that can when he first becomes a Buddha, that can um, confirm the enlightenment. So he calls upon the earth as witness, calling the earth as witness for enlightenment. So these are the five that are used in the Theravada tradition. There are many more 
in the Tibetan tradition. By suppression, do you mean the Buddha's fifth way of dealing with unwholesome thoughts, drowning them, which means a conscious action, or does it mean an unconscious action, denying? Suppression is an unconscious pretension. It's pretend. Suppression is the pretension it isn't there. One may have an inkling that it's there, but one isn't willing or maybe not able to deal with it. So one pretends it isn't there. And we've all been guilty of that at one time or another. Nobody who isn't very much advanced in practice is able to see all the underlying tendencies. We see some, but we don't see all. So suppression is not even something that we do on purpose. It just happens. But it's certainly not the conscious action of trying to get rid of unwholesomeness. Then, when we do that, we have already seen the unwholesomeness. So we're not suppressing it. We're just trying to get rid of it. But it's the non-seeing of it. How does one get rid of self-pity when one is widowed? That's two questions. I'll do that one first. There's a very lovely story about that from the Buddha's time. And it's not about a woman that became widowed, but it's about a woman whose very small child died. It was about three years old, the child. And uh, she'd had waited a long, long time to have a child. And she only had the one. And it was the apple of her eye. Her name was Kisa Gotame, a very famous figure in the Buddhist uh, stories and discourses. She couldn't accept the fact that the child was dead. She carried it around in her arms and ran from one place to another trying to find someone who would help her because she said the child was sick and would somebody get her some uh, medicine to uh, make the child well. Well, at first people were sorry for her but after a while they got sick and tired of this behavior. And then finally she met up with a person who said that he would take her to a very great physician who would know the proper medicine. And this person took her to the Buddha. And she came there with this dead child in her arms and uh, she uh, begged the Buddha to please get her some medicine for this sick child. And the Buddha said, yes, I know the medicine. She was overjoyed. And he said, I want you to go down to the nearest village and go to each house and bring one sesame seed back from each house. And she was just going to run off and do that. And he said, but you can only take a sesame seed from a house where nobody has died. And she said, all right, I'll do that. So she quickly went down to the village and she went to 
the first house and asked for sesame seeds. Of course, everybody has in India sesame seeds. So they were just getting ready to give her some when she said, have anybody died here? And they said, oh, yes. Grandfather died not long ago. She said, oh, I can't use your sesame seeds. And she went from house to house. And she came to the last house. And still, it was impossible to find a house where there hadn't been somebody who had died. And then it dawned on her that this is the way life goes. So she went back to the Buddha and asked him to make a nice burial for the small child and uh, accepted the fact that death follows life. So then she also became a nun in the Buddha's dispensation and the story says that later on in her life she became enlightened. It's a very famous story because people do have that kind of difficulty. She didn't only have self-pity, which in itself is also not pleasant, but she wouldn't even accept the uh, facts of death. But then, having been confronted with a whole village, where each house, somebody had died, she couldn't help but accept it. Oh, there's another question there. What to do when fear turns to panic? Don't allow it. (laughs) Get rid of the fear. Now, getting rid of the fear, usually, the best way to do it is to inquire into it. What am I afraid of? And when the answer comes, then ask another question. Why am I afraid of that? And when the answer comes, ask another question until it becomes totally clear that the fear is not based on anything that is really and truly important, but strictly on projections into the future and the fear of personal annihilation. So when we see that, we are able to let go. Another help in this, for this is, of course, to do as much loving-kindness meditation for oneself as possible so that there is a re- residual effect of that. When fear starts, that one can um, have an, a basis on which one has a feeling for oneself which is uh, pleasant rather than unpleasant. But the inquiry into fear is usually the best way to let go of it. Only a Buddha knows a Buddha. But if you meet the Buddha, kill him. Isn't this a contradiction? Yes, absolutely. The first one is relative. The second one is absolute. I'm not going to go any further on that. I'll allow you to think about it. (laughs) My own knees don't hurt. Good. Somebody coughing may irritate me. And still, when I remember the pain of others, people I have never known 
and whose pain I may have never known, it chokes me. The more I meditate, the stronger it gets. How to deal with it in meditation? Not only in meditation. The Buddha compared people to four kinds of horses. The first kind of horse, all you have to do is whisper the command in his ear and he will immediately obey. A second kind of horse, you have to pull the reins and the horse will obey. The third kind of horse, you have to use the spurs, dig them in, and then it will obey. And the fourth kind of horse, you have to use the whip. There's a fifth kind of horse. You can do anything you want. Nothing happens at all. (laughs) Now with people, that relates to this. That the first kind of person just has to hear about the pain, the dukkha that exists in the world. Never even meet the people or see them, but just hear about it. And they start practicing, can recognize the urgency of practice. The second kind of person, they have to actually see it optically and be confronted with the pain of other people. And then they'll start practicing. And then the third kind, the dukkha has to happen in their own family. And then they'll start doing something. And the fourth kind has to have happened the dukkha to themselves. Most people, unfortunately, belong to the fourth kind. But that's why we also say dukkha is our best teacher. It's the one which we can really rely on, always to be present. In this case here, one would think, or we would assume, that this is the first kind of person. The pain of people I have never known makes me, chokes me, and it gets stronger with meditation. To deal with it in meditation is to see that dukkha is all-pervading, and then examine how one is dealing with one's own dukkha. How do I deal with it? What am I doing about it? Or have I not noticed mine? Am I only aware of the dukkha of others? So this is um, an inside type of contemplation, which can be extremely beneficial, seeing that it's not only others. I've got the same And the compassion which arises out of that is for myself and others. The urgency to practice comes out of that. And also the understanding that in this world we will not find fulfillment. Once that has been understood, one has a different direction in in life. So this is extremely useful to have that kind of uh, view But one also has to see one's own dukkha, even if the knees never hurt. So that's how it started. My own knees don't hurt.
I'm feeling very tired and exhausted after these days. I would like to only sleep. The rings under my eyes are getting darker. <laughs> Have I done something wrong? Well, I can't say because it doesn't say a thing about the meditation practice. It doesn't say a thing about what's been happening in a contemplation practice. I can't say whether anything's been done wrong. But I can only suggest loving-kindness meditation exclusively. Nothing else. Just loving-kindness meditation over and over again. What to do when you see someone being on the totally wrong way and there must and something unfortunate must happen one can't solve the problems of others I know that but should one just watch how far should one go should one suggest something for that person or make plans for that person well the Buddha expressed it in this way if you know something that can be hurtful to another person and it's untrue don't say it if you know something that can be helpful to another person and it's untrue don't say it if you know something that can be hurtful to another person and it's true don't say it if you can know something that can be helpful to another person and it's true find the right time in other words, if one has really investigated whether the time is correct, the time is only then correct when the other person wants to listen, is obviously ready to hear what one has to say, and if one's heart is full of love for that person and there is that time and leisure, to talk to each other how should one behave when one is back home people often ask what was it like in the retreat what was so good about it should one answer these questions I mean talking about it is probably not recommendable if somebody asks sincerely answer sincerely if somebody asks with a sort of a skeptical doubt in mind and tone of voice like well what have you been doing there all this time <laughs> I would suggest that the answer should be very short in fact one could turn around and say well, you tell me what you've been doing. <laughs> and it might be much more successful. I think we can hear very well whether somebody is sincerely interested or not. If somebody is sincerely interested, answer truthfully what you've been doing and how it has affected you. And when you see that the eyes are getting out of focus of the listener, <laughs> stop.
Sometimes I say to my mind, starting a meditation, Okay, mind, let's see what kind of magical tricks you use this time <laughs> to distract me. Sometimes it can help to be a little humorous with the mind because it's used to that kind of speech. What do you think? Should one be more serious? No, laughing at oneself and taking it lightly is extremely helpful. May all beings be free from troubles of body and mind. This statement feels to me like it contradicts the recognition and acceptance of Dukkha. Well, it certainly doesn't contradict the recognition because otherwise why should we wish for people to be free from troubles if we didn't recognize the fact that they have them? So obviously the recognition is there in full force. Wishing them to be free from trouble of mind and body is nothing but love and compassion for them, hoping that they will know what to do. The acceptance of the fact that there is Dukkha is expressed in the statement. We know there is Dukkha. They might be sitting there smiling, and they might have all the things that the world considers important. And yet we wish them to be free from troubles of body and mind. It's a recognition and an acceptance of the fact that there is Dukkha. And we can only do that, that recognition and acceptance, if we have recognized and accepted within ourselves. I'm of the nature to decay. I can see quite clearly that this is so with my body, but feel that with age my mind is actually developing, so find it difficult to use mind as a subject for this contemplation. Uh, it's not necessary to use the mind for that. It's very... Um, to use mind as an object of decay. It is, uh, it is clearly meant for the body that it is of the nature to decay and as we identify with the body and with a personal mind which sits in a personal body it may help us when we realize that this body is falling apart and can't be helped always will do that that we might realize that this personal mind which we think sits in that decaying um, body is also a misconception. So it's quite all right just to use a body for that. And I think it's um, the person who wrote that to be congratulated that with age the mind is actually developing because unless one practices very strongly and very regularly it's not to be expected that the mind is developing so if that is the case it's a very very good sign is it alright when one has reached the first absorption of meditation and also stays with it for a certain time everything seems to flow and lose its limits but only the top of the head still has 
its relative shape like it has out of meditation. So if there is a first absorption, the mind has to be on the delightful sensation and nothing else. If it falls out of it, to bring it back to it. Here's a Dukkha story. In the past 24 hours, the quality of my concentration has deteriorated markedly. At the same time, I seem to be developing a cold as well. The sits are spent sitting in the middle of profuse mental fantasies and physical symptoms. And then, and there, seems to be no glimpse of concentration anymore. The whole situation seems unsatisfactory. Should I, A, accept it as it is, that it will pass, but keep attempting to concentrate however poorly? B, pray to God to intercede? (laughs) C, go and read a book? D, jump from the clock tower out of despair? (laughs) Well, I would definitely advise against the last one. (laughs) We would get a terrible name here with the others. I don't think he'd let us back in. <laughs> now, <coughs> praying to God to intercede, is one, if one has had good results with that, why not? <laughs> if there has ever been any good result from that, I would certainly say, why don't, why not? Um, go and read a book, I don't know, but go and take a walk, yes. Um, it can very easily be trying too hard. It went well, now I want it to go even better. Or, it went well, it's got to go just as well. There can be a tension there, which is um, result thinking. So, yes, go and take a walk. Or, go and look at the beautiful roses that are um, behind the parking lot, the lovely flowers in the cemetery. And at the same time, maybe you read the uh, tombstones, which will bring about a sort of feeling of, um, there they are, but I'm here. So what does that mean for me? And the first one was, accepted as it is, that it will pass, but keep attempting to concentrate however poorly. Um, well, as I said, go and look at the roses, go and look at the cemetery, take a walk, and accept, yes, accept the fact that the mind plays tricks all the time. And so this is one of its tricks. It's trying to say, Oh, what are you sitting there in meditation all the time? <laughs> Let's go and have a look at uh, Germany and uh, see what it looks like, and maybe we can take a trip or something. You know. So um, it's it's a very tricky um, fellow, this mind. So we have to be very careful with it, and not to push it too hard, but also not to let it be completely on its own. One could compare it 
to educating a small child. If you push a child too hard, it's going to rebel. It's going to scream back. But if you let it be and tell it nothing, it may not get any behavior pattern at all. So gentle, middle way. And in this case, I think gentle would be the word Is, uh, is the walking meditation only meant for sharpening the concentration? Does it also bring along the meditative absorption? Mm-hmm. Well, it could, uh, when the concentration is sharpened, very well bring the first one. It's uh, possible also to have the second one, but after that I think one needs to sit down. It's um, not uh, useful to keep on walking then. But it is for concentration, yes. It's for mindfulness of body movement, which we can carry over into daily life. Mindfulness of body movement. It has all those features, those other two also. In sweeping meditation this evening, I had pains all over the place. And in between the pain spots, I couldn't feel much at all. And then I began asking, what if there is no one in here? This is just a body, an impersonal set of sensations that change all the time. And I scanned the whole body for the sensations I could feel. And the pains were then like unpleasant spots of localized movement of varying intensity. But it was as if I was outside the body, not identified with it. Is this okay, or is there a danger of not actually feeling fully, of not getting inside the feeling, like I thought you suggested? If there is um, sensation, which there was, there were unpleasant spots of localized movement, it's quite all right to be the observer being outside of the body. In the beginning, people often have difficulty finding or becoming aware of sensation. So it often helps to imagine that one is inside and there feel it. But here, this is fine. Usually, in sweeping, I feel mainly sensation rather than emotion, even in my chest. Does this matter? No, I answered that already. It's quite all right. I assume Descartes got it all wrong, yes. I think, therefore, I am. If so, philosophy 1b was not too useful when I studied it. I fully agree. (laughs) When I was a small child, I remember asking my father, what am I learning all this arithmetic and geometry for? Because I couldn't stand it, and I also didn't understand it. And he said, what I never need that. What is this for? And he said, that's strictly for sharpening your mind. And I thought, oh, well, okay. <laughs> so I went on with it as best I could. Not very well, but as best I could. And I dare say philosophy 1B would have had the same usefulness. When one has to, one learns connections. One learns to make connections. But in the deepest and absolute sense, no. I think, therefore, I am. It's the other way around. I am, therefore, I think. 
and if we ever read the life stories of the great philosophers most of them we will find were desperately unhappy and a few of them committed suicide which is a sign of great unhappiness and hatefulness towards oneself if we take our attention off a spot or a thought or whatever is this the same as letting go or dropping it does it mean that we cannot for instance feel something that we don't have our attention on is this is so it is puzzling because I seem to feel several things at once for instance pressure from the pillow and pain in the back well we have that um, concept also that when we can have uh, a dozen things in the mind in fact we even say that leave me alone I've got a dozen things on my mind well it doesn't work that way the Buddha said we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid but not 3,000 of them together but one after the other but usually we don't have that many because it would be terribly disturbing we usually have a fair number but not at the same time the mind is so fast faster than light so it goes from one to the other back and forth back and forth back and forth there's the pillow there's the pain there's the pillow there's the pain <laughs> and it uh, we don't know that that it does that until we pay attention to that so it's quite true that we can only know what we put our mind on but because the mind doesn't stay on we then know something else we move from one to the other um, if we intentionally let go of a thought or a spot on the body and move to something else yes that is letting go letting go is an action a mind action where the mind sort of like opening the hand and letting go the mind opens and lets go and puts itself somewhere else of course so yes one does have the impression that one can be aware of more than two things at once ten twelve any number relating Buddhism to other practices this is a comparative religion in the church the Holy Spirit is represented as a dove in a sun ray of gold is this equivalent to the expanding heart sensation of metta visualized as we did last night is this the Holy Spirit of Christianity I have no idea <laughs> none whatsoever I've never given it any thought if I think about it I might come up with something but I can't think of what the dove in a sun ray of gold is supposed to mean it's a beautiful image and uh, it may mean anything I really don't know that the um, that meta loving kindness meditation 
is akin to the Holy Spirit in Christianity, I doubt that. But as I say, I really don't know. The alchemists who practiced turning base metal and into gold is this equivalent to our journey from relative to absolute reality? I have no idea what the alchemists had in mind. The only thing I know about the alchemists, I saw a little street in Prague where they used to live. That's all I know about them. But actually, turning base metal into gold has always been considered the purification path. The base metal is that which are our base instincts and the gold is the purification. So that's not a difficult one um, as a symbolism. Whether the alchemists actually really had only that in mind, I really don't know. And it doesn't help the meditation practice. Not at all. It's great listening to you, but trying to watch my breath for 45 minutes is a waste of time. I can still do it for two minutes only. Only a disciplined masochist would want to continue doing it at home. (laughs) Two minutes would be all right, but longer? Well two minutes and then again two minutes and then another two minutes and then maybe uh, 22 times two minutes and then we've got uh, 44 minutes just have to start over and over again Um, I don't think one needs to be a masochist for that Uh, that's only if there is negativity in the mind I think one has to have, well, yes, discipline, that says here, that's true, self-discipline, and an understanding of what it can bring for one. If one has that, I think one will continue. But it doesn't have to be the breath. We have other methods. One can use other methods. Maybe one of the other methods might work better. Let's maybe the part part by part works better. But on, in other words, two minutes and again two minutes and another two minutes and eventually it'll be 45 minutes. The contemplations and sweeping are for insight. Can you explain how this practice leads to insight in everyday life? The insight which arises out of the contemplations and out of the sweeping can be used for for daily life. It um, don't uh, particularly lead to insight in daily life. They can be used for that. And uh, possibly one of them will be to make it short and sweet, impermanence. Is it fruitful to do a contemplation about some subject in everyday life that is on one's mind? Well, usually not, because the things that are usually on one's mind are personal problems, and personal problems are not subjects for contemplation. 
Personal problems are exactly what they're called, personal problems. And if one practices uh, diligently and continuously, these personal problems disappear. The uh, contemplation on some subject should have to do with universality. If it's a universal problem, yes, not if it's a personal problem. What is the relationship between insight and intuition? Uh, not really. Not related. Insight is uh, a deep understanding of the um, real underlying truth in the universe. Intuition has usually got something to do with having a feeling for something. I have a very slow digestive system. Even though I'm eating less than in the first few days, I have a problem meditating after the rest period, after lunch and after dinner. Can you suggest another practice? Yes, walking meditation instead of sitting down. Walking meditation and possibly doing it a little faster one can do one doesn't have to do it very slow and it's still meditative and it'll be better than sitting down if there is a problem with that when you're able to experience a jhana should you be able to return to it at will once one has practiced sufficiently yes uh, the um, to become master of the jhanas one must be able to enter whenever one wants to, jump from one to any of the others, stay in each one as long as one wants to, and leave them when one wants to. At this point in time, we don't aim for mastery. What we're aiming for is having the experience and then um, anchoring it better. And then it says, could you please speak about kinds of jhana? But I think I did that this morning. Number one, two, three. Which also at this point of time will probably be sufficient for practice. And so the next question probably is um, far more than is needed. There's, what does a fourth jhana feel like? What's the insight after the fourth jhana? Well, if one does it, one does know what it feels like and it isn't really um, very useful just to um, talk about it, what it feels like. And the same with the next thing. In order to reach Nibbana, does, do people have to experience all the jhanas? No, I said that. The Buddha said that one can do it after any of the jhanas. Is it possible to reach full enlightenment after experiencing only the first three jhanas? Certainly, but very few people do. <laughs> it's easier to have three jhanas than to be enlightened. Does the fourth jhana always occur after the third? Well, usually. 
that the fifth jhana come after the fourth. Um, most of the time do people jump from third to fifth without going through the fourth yes they do actually they do that Um, please talk a little more on the concept of equanimity and its application in daily life equanimity is not a concept Um, I don't think that any of the things I've talked about are concepts They're either thoughts, feelings, or practices. They are concepts in the way that a word is a concept, but equanimity is certainly no concept. Equanimity is the highest of all emotions, and the application in daily life is the opposite of being worried and um, restless and anxious, and uh, it's also the opposite of being indifferent. Indifference is its near enemy because it appears to be similar. But in itself, equanimity is the one emotion which is a part of the seven sectors of enlightenment. So it's the epitome of emotional stability. Is the Satori or Samadhi of Zen one of the meditative absorption? Or is it something, is it another uh, level of consciousness? Well, Satori and Samadhi are two different things. Uh, Samadhi means concentration, and if that's used in any Zen practice, it would denote a meditative absorption. And Satori it denotes the uh, first past moment. Today I made an amazing experience. experience. I had experienced a deep feeling of peace and calm med- in meditation. When I sat down for lunch, I was able to bring this beautiful, peaceful feeling up again. I happened to sit between two experienced meditators. And now the experience. I was able to link in and join with a peace emanating from them and thus reinforce and multiply the peaceful feeling in me. Now I am, of course, eager to try this out in real life. (laughs) What do you think about it? Is this an experience that only works together with people that have experienced third jhana? Well, it would be a bit difficult to go around asking people, have you done third jhana? In fact, I don't think it's advisable. They might think one has lost one's marbles. (laughs) But what happens is that if one is together with a person who's angry, one can feel it. And if one is together with a person who's peaceful, one can also feel it. And it really doesn't depend on third jhana. It depends on the feeling that person has at that particular moment that one is together with them. And one would hope that some people here have, in the meantime, after having been here for eight days, have got some calm and peace within them, and that one can feel that. 
And uh, yes, one can feel it wherever one goes, uh, with ever, uh, one, whomever one is together with, if one pays attention. And if one let it influence one on the negative side, it's uh, not very useful because more people in the world are not peaceful. So one would be unfavorably influenced. I notice that lately, as I become more concentrated during a sitting, a sort of bodily surrendering or letting go naturally takes place. It manifests itself as a fusing of all my body parts and features and then the sensation of weightlessness ensues. During this long progression, however, my posture has changed significantly from when I first sat down. My back has become quite rounded and my chin is almost buried in my chest. To consciously manipulate my posture seems to impede my journey into seclusion. Would you comment on posture and its relationship to concentration practice? Well, first of all, if there's a sensation of weightlessness and one can stay with that as a meditation subject, that would be the first meditative absorption, the lightness as opposed to heaviness. It should be a delightful sensation. Usually, when the chin is buried in the chest, it's an expression of not being very focused. So, it would be better to sit up straight and start all over again, rather than stay like that. Please, could you explain what you would consider right livelihood to be? Right livelihood is anything that doesn't break any of the five precepts and does not um, support the breaking of any of the five precepts. And I will explain those five precepts tomorrow in detail. When working in the garden, sometimes I accidentally harm creatures living under the soil. It makes me feel very sorry. What is the best thing to do? Should I wish them a good rebirth? Yes, definitely, wishing them a good rebirth. Since it's done accidentally, it doesn't have the karma of killing. It may have the karma of lack of mindfulness, but it doesn't have the karma of killing. There's no intention to harm. When we do harm, and in the garden, it's, it's impossible not to. There are creatures everywhere. We don't even see them all. Then it is very good to apologize for the harm and wish them well in any which way we want to. Good rebirth is one of them. As long as we have this body and need to feed it, we will accidentally and sometimes even intentionally, harm. There's um, no way out of that. It's a very gross situation to have a body like that 
that needs to be fed three times a day and that's what happens yeah. all day yesterday a sense of well-being was gradually filling me from my meditations as well as daily activity by the end of loving kindness meditation last night I felt joyous inside I went for a walk and felt full and full of comfort and independent no craving I went to sleep feeling that way in the morning I awoke in a cranky irritable mood and then I got angry at waking that way <laughs> I went to morning meditation and got clear and felt better then two incidents occurred where my heart intentions were not appreciated and I felt worse lots of impermanence I sat with this and realized what you've been speaking of today I saw how interconnected all my actions are how every time I do something that's even slightly result orientated Dukkha rears its head I keep seeing how even the most innocent action often has subtle expectations again I feel better recognize no blame change my question after all this is am I on the right path and is this in the worldly realm still yes it's the right path of mindfulness recognizing what's going on in oneself and realizing that it's um, possible to change oneself everything is in the worldly realm except the path and fruit moments even the jhanas are worldly realm everything is in the worldly realm because all of that is reversible and also impermanent path and fruit is irreversible so the world is always with us but sometimes in a more acute way than in others does it make sense and during the everyday opportunities whenever one can remember to return to the touch contact of the breath at the nose in order to sharpen mindfulness and not to think anything unwholesome that would be an easy practice for me and also it would help me to interrupt dreaming fant and fantasies yes it's uh, very helpful to get back to the attention on the breath during the day in fact it is usually recommended that if one works at anything doesn't matter what it is to at least take five to ten minutes of every hour to stop what one is doing and watch one's breath or if one finds it difficult to watch one's breath to do loving-kindness meditation the uh, one of the um, things that it will help it does sharpen the uh, mindfulness that's quite true but it will also help one not to feel overwhelmed 
by one's work and not to think it's so terribly important. Is there sometimes a connection between enthusiasm and greed? Uh, yes. That's um, uh, very well put. There certainly is. Um, or let's say there can be. Because if there is enthusiasm to get closer to something, one obviously wants that something. But what we are faced with as human beings is that we are craving. It's, this is called the Kama Loka, K-A-M-A-L-O-K-A, Kama Loka. And that means the realm, the location, Loka, the realm of sensual desire or craving. So that's where we are. And because of that, <coughs> it's a natural state for us to crave something. Now, we usually say, sort of with tongue-in-cheek, we are practicing because we are craving to get rid of craving. So if one has the enthusiasm for the practice, it's still craving, but it's the kind of craving which will eventually produce no craving. There are many things that I have said and done in the past which cause a lot of regret and pain when I recall them. These are facts, things I've done. What do I replace them with? can't replace the things I've done. I can replace the regret and the pain, but I can't replace what I've done. The things I've done are the causes and the effects will be mine, no matter what. There are, of course, always circumstances which change that. But the regret is not and useful what is necessary is to look at the things that one has said and done in the past and see whether one can make amends if one has hurt anybody and that person is alive one can apologize if one has done anything which has harmed them in their material life one can make amends materially if the person is dead, one can also apologize and send loving kindness. The apology should not just, in the case of a living person, not just be in the mind, but it should be verbal or it can be written. It should not just go on as a thought process, but should actually manifest itself. If one does that, then there is a certain feeling of relief. Whether the person that one apologizes to accepts the apology or not is immaterial. has nothing to do with it. That's their karma. One's own karma 
is helped by apology. The other thing that one has to do and needs to do with this in this case is to remember that the person who said and did the things that one now considers unwholesome is not the person that is considering them unwholesome. This person today has a better understanding and therefore wouldn't probably not do those things again. So we have to forgive that past person. If we can't forgive ourselves for what we have said and done, we'll never be able to forgive anybody for what they have said and done. We may imagine we're doing it, just as we are imagining that we can love somebody if we don't love ourselves. That's all imagination. If we don't love ourselves, we don't love anybody. But if we don't forgive ourselves, we don't forgive anybody. So forgiving ourselves does not mean that we now no longer know that those things we said and did were unwholesome. We do know, but we forgive. We forgive because they were done out of ignorance, most likely, one can assume. One can also make a determination never to do or say a thing like that again. That's also useful. The apology is extremely important and can be very, very helpful. I had an experience very recently where somebody apologized to me for something that she said to me when I was 10 years old. And she's as old as I am now and uh, has never forgotten it. I didn't even know she ever said it which, of course, relieved her mind greatly. <laughs> if there is no sufferer, only suffering, does it mean there's only sound, no producer? No, no owner. Sound, yes, no owner. And acting is always connected with the me, the relative reality. There's a question mark behind that. Acting, is acting, would make it a question. Is acting always connected with the me? I presume what is meant is that acting as a profession. I don't know, it doesn't say that. Because um, basically speaking, we're all acting. We're acting out a role. And so, of course, it's connected with me with all this acting but I think what is meant is a profession of acting and uh, everything we do everything we think everything we say is connected with me as long as we think there's a me how can it be otherwise the whole thing is connected with me that's why we have the methods and the uh, methods of meditation and contemplation in order to shift that solidity of the me, maybe um, shake it a bit or question it a bit. Most people in the world never question me. Why should they? Everybody believes in it, so why should they question something which is so obviously true for everybody? So everything we do, whether it's acting or gardening 
or cooking or um, going for a walk is connected with me because we think it's me going for a walk. And we don't only think it. We actually know it, don't we? It's me going for a walk. Who else? So there is only sound and no owner of the sound. And that that would be uh, quite true. On the first or second day of the course, you said, there are only very, very few people on this earth with little dust in their eyes. Would you explain this beautiful metaphor? Does it refer to the enlightened ones? And what does little dust mean? It's an expression of the Buddha. I'm only um, um, quoting him. And he said it after his enlightenment. He said it in a little differently. He, when after he was enlightened, he enjoyed the bliss of Nibbana uh, for a week and decided he wouldn't teach because it would be too cumbersome. And not only that, people would not understand his teaching and that would be a vexation for him. So it says in the scripture just like that would be a vexation because the teaching would be too deep and people wouldn't understand. So then the uh, story goes that the highest of the um, Brahmas, the highest of from the God realms, came to see him and begged him to teach for the benefit of gods and men. And so with his omniscient vision, the Buddha looked around and said, there are some people with little dust in their eyes and they'll understand the teaching so I'll teach for their benefit and dust in the eyes means little dust in the eyes it doesn't mean the optical eye it means the inner vision there are some people or few people a few people a few people that have little dust in their eyes they will understand so there are a few people that have a clearer inner vision and so they can actually make use of the teaching and uh, this is a very a good thing to remember for anybody who teaches well this is not a not a question it's a statement the sun glints glints what is this? on an ever moving door now because of the teaching now I realize it demonstrates perfectly arising and ceasing. Very good. Absolutely, absolutely true. End of questions for this course.